right, what's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Take three podcast back with you. This is going to be episode two. We had our first episode, the inaugural one, last uh, Wednesday during the uh, round two as we definitely evolved with more sports news. Um, I'm Brandon, joined by my buddy after a uh, long day of work, Alex. What's up, man? Happy to be here. We had an exciting weekend of basketball. A lot of things happened. There's a lot of teams that uh, futures look a little uncertain, so I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, there was um, yeah, there was a lot of stuff that went down. For I'll uh, I'll save the other words. There could be a lot of words used, but a lot of things went down. <laughs> Obviously, we watched some crazy things uh, occur in a Jazz Clippers series, and then definitely, I think the shocker of everybody was definitely what went down with the Hawks and the Sixers, and then. Obviously, the Bucks kind of did their little uh, did their little thing. Game seven showed a little bit of resiliency for once, which was uh, cool. But I think, I mean, the freshest the freshest topic on the hand here and on the docket, I would say, since the Eastern Conference Final has not tipped off yet, it's definitely the Philadelphia 76ers completely unraveling. Not only in Game Seven, I mean, they never really had control in Game Seven as they got ousted. On the home floor, we saw bottles come down onto the court. I mean, I don't condone any of that as a Philly fan. I have to hear about that as a uh, Philadelphia sports fan. But um, I guess just what did you see? What did what was what was the temperature in the room as you watched the Sixers um, finally get sunken by the iceberg that was the Atlanta Hawks? Kudos to them guys for being a, a gritty team. Yeah. First off, let's before we jump in on the Sixers, let's give, let's give the Hawks credit. They played well. Uh, good, young, gritty team, and they fought their way way further than anybody thought. So congrats to them. But the bigger picture with the Sixers, it felt like just a total collapse. I mean, if you go through – if you go back to game five, I believe they had like a 16-point lead that, that was blown. And then you go into game six, and it was like a 20-plus point lead blown. And then, like you said, game seven, they never felt like they had control. It felt like they got defeated mentally, honestly, more than anything. Because it's like – when the Sixers really, like, turned it on and started playing well, you you kind of felt like they were going to run away with it for game five and game six. You're watching it and you're going, all right, the Sixers are just a more talented, much better basketball team. And you thought they were going to run away with it. And then here comes the Hawks both times. And it just felt like the Hawks were just mentally tougher and weren't willing to give up. And it felt like every single game, the last three at the end, it felt like the Sixers, Sixers were defeated mentally. Like they just given up or like, all right, here you go, Trey. Here you go, Hawks. Just take it from us because we don't want it. Yeah. I mean, what I saw was it just, yeah, it felt like the Atlanta Hawks, they wanted it more. Even from, I mean, you could go back, obviously game one, they shot the lights out, but it was at every point in this series, it seemed like when the Sixers landed a haymaker and it's the one that's supposed to knock the Hawks out, it's finally the knockout punch. The Hawks just kept answering the bell. They kept it being eight count and they would get up. And I mean, game five, they were down, I think it was 18. And they, they just fired back at all cylinders. The Sixers kind of, I guess, expected them to roll over and just say, all right, we're done. Yeah, I mean, we're a young team. We had a good run, but we're outmatched. But the Hawks, they never showed they were outmatched. They came back, obviously battled back, get the game five win, and then game six, yeah, game – or no, what was it? It was game four, game four, game five. That was the two bad blown leads. Yeah, so game four was the 18 point. So game five, yeah, we went back to Philly, and that's the one where I'm jumping up and down. It's – yeah, the suit, like, it's a wrap. It's, it's done. The Hawks are done. And then once again, I mean, they're down 26 points. You feel like the knockout punch is there, and then the Sixers hit the, I guess it's the coast button, 
where they just thought all we got to do is play 12 minutes. We don't have to do anything. Just play 12 minutes and we'll get out here with a win. These guys, they don't want to, uh, they don't want to battle anymore. And what do the Hawks do? The Hawks show hey, we're not done. We're going to fire out, run our offense. And it seemed like the Sixers, when the Hawks came back firing the Sixers, they were out of all sorts. Doc Rivers, he was out of options. I mean, Doc Rivers looked clueless sitting on the bench. The guy didn't have a clue of what to do. And it's crazy. Like, I don't know. He's definitely, I think, he's a very overrated coach in my eyes through, through his history. A lot of people hype up Doc Rivers, but I've definitely seen now as Doc Rivers is my team's coach, the guy that I, I laughed at Doc Rivers as he choked away games at the Clippers. Then he comes in and uh, does what my team, but it just, yeah, it felt like the Hawks wanted it more. And then, yeah, when it came down to, I mean, even game six, the Sixers, they, I mean, they kind of battled. It seemed just like the Hawks, I don't know, they just couldn't get shots to fall down the stretch. But then game seven, yeah, I mean, I said earlier today, those game sevens, when the home team doesn't come out and just absolutely throat punch the visiting team, which, I mean, I think everybody expected. I mean, if you looked at the lines, the Sixers were a seven-and-a-half point favorite, I think, is the money line. It was like minus 305. I think it closed at like 285. But that's saying the Sixers aren't losing at home, right? They didn't win game six to go home to game seven and lose them. They just – I don't know, Trey was not good, right? Trey was bad. It was a bad Trey Young game. If you look at the Trey Young stat line and never look at the final score, you probably assume they lose. Like, it's just that simple. But the Sixers never wanted it. I mean, the half – I missed the first half, but it was 48-46 at half. And it just – the Sixers, when I watched, they were just lackadaisical. Didn't want it. And eventually the Hawks put them out of their misery. You know what I mean? They got what they wanted. It didn't look like – didn't look like the Sixers wanted to be there. And as you said, it's it's kudos to the Hawks for being the, the better team and showing resiliency in a series like that. Oh, yeah. And uh, Doc Rivers, he he seemed lost. He, he had a 10-man – I believe it was a 10-man rotation in Game 7. It's Game 7 in the semifinals. You're the one seed. You're at home, and you're running ten a 10-man rotation. Steve Nash with the Nets, which we'll get to and we'll talk about, their game seven, I believe, like, it was like a seven-man rotation. Jeff Green, who was a monster in game five, played like seven minutes. And then you have Doc Rivers for the Sixers running ten-man deep, just not making any adjustments. And, like, and they got a bad Trey Young game. Trey Young was getting his floater and good jump shots, but they just weren't landing. He just uh, couldn't get it. He made it when it mattered, but most of the game he couldn't get it going. And – yeah, the, the Hawks got whatever they want. Daniel Gallinari and Kevin Herter, they, you, they're getting guarded by guys like Seth Curry and George Hill. They're just shooting over them. Like, there's no adjustments to be made. And, we're, and like, I need more from Tobias Harris throughout the series. Like, him and Ben Simmons. It's like, I mean, Embiid averages, like, 30 and 13 with a couple blocks. Like, Embiid's doing what he does. But, like, you just need more from the supporting cast. And, uh, yeah, you were right. It was game four and five that they blew the lead. And – um one of those games, you got 37 points from Seth Curry. If you get 37 points from Seth Curry, like, how do you lose that game? Like, that's inexcusable. And, like, with Doc Rivers, I don't know what he's doing. I don't, I don't know how to defend him. Like, you've seen blown leads, whether it's the Clippers, all the way back to the Orlando Magic with T-Mac. And it's like there's just so many opportunities. And he just he, – he does get his team ready to play. And it's like it's not his fault Ben Simmons is out there passing up layups and missing free throws but at the same time when there's like this long of a track record and history of blowing these closeout games and these big games it's kind of hard I mean I doubt like the relationship with Ben Simmons and the Sixers is rough and I doubt 
that they can repair it and Ben Simmons is around in the future. But, like, what about the relationship with Doc? Like, I know it's only been one season, but he came in with the one seed, clearly a better team, and he he didn't have them ready to go to, to lock it down. They lost again. So it's like, does Doc Rivers come back? Do you run him back? Like, what do the Sixers do next? I mean, yeah, uh, you guys, I think you could ask Doc Rivers. That Doc Rivers doesn't have a clue what he's doing. I mean, he doesn't have a clue. Ben Simmons didn't seem remotely interested. Even being there, I mean, the guy, I don't know. We're now in year – this is going to be year six. Like, this is year five, and it's – he's arguably either regressed or he's the same. I guess you could say he regressed because, uh, I mean, at the beginning of his career, I don't remember him not being able to shoot free throws like this. This was – the free throw shooting was – a disaster it's like he goes to the free throw line you just close your eyes I guess pray that one of two it's like never been happy at one of two free throws going down but he at times he couldn't even hit one of two I mean the guy shot I think it was 33 percent the guy shot free throws worse than Shaq at uh at Shaq's worst and it's like and it's a much bigger deal for Ben Simmons compared to Shaq because Shaq was a big man playing center. He got the ball in the post, low shooting layups. Ben is their point guard. He's got the ball in his hands. You need your point guard to be able to make those clutch shots and free throws down the stretch. And if you can't even trust supposedly your second best player on the team, like you can't even have him really on the court because he'll just hack him or he's too scared to even take layups. Like it's just he unraveled like everything has fallen apart. Yeah, I think, yeah, his confidence is pretty much gone, I would say. I mean, he's a point guard that doesn't attack. He has no, uh, I don't know, no urgency. He doesn't really have a voice on the court either. There's not a time where you think, you know, Ben Simmons is in control of this thing. He doesn't bark out orders. You watch Draymond Green with Golden State who kind of runs that similar role. I mean, he shoots more shots, but uh, he runs that similar role where he has a voice and commands the offense and even on defense is commanding guys on defense. And Ben Simmons is kind of just a guy that, uh, somebody else takes the ball and Ben Simmons goes and stands uh, and prays that a, a missed shot happens so he can maybe get a rebound or do a, a putback dunk. But it's, I mean, yeah, it's a max player, right? It's, you can't have a max player that you can't even have out there. He was on the bench in crunch time. I don't, I don't know if you can deal with that. So, I mean, the Sixers, I don't know, but back to the Doc Rivers thing. I mean, honestly, I would not be mad if, I don't think it'll happen personally. I don't think it will, but I wouldn't be mad if they uh, cut Doc Rivers loose I think this was I mean there's no explanation for this right there's no there's really none you're the one seed as we've said before a very easy road you played the Wizards a Hawks team who's young but I mean young with an interim coach it's Doc Rivers should be able if Doc Rivers is this Hall of Fame coach he should have his guy he should have a clue out there he, he was lost I mean this was arguably he did what Brett Brown did right we watched Brett Brown get out coached and whooped by Brad Stevens and these other coaches when it came to playoff time and everybody got mad at Brad's or at uh, Brett Brown and was Brett Brown's the problem. Brett Brown's the problem. Well, now you got a hall of fame coach and the same exact thing just happened. And he looked just as lost as Brett Brown did on the bench. So, I mean, I wouldn't be mad if, if, if Doc Rivers got fired, I doubt it happens. I'd say maybe a 5% chance. Very, very slim. I think uh, inevitably they'll move, they'll find a, a deal for Ben Simmons. I don't like seeing this stuff. The stuff where today, obviously, Doc Rivers said that uh, the Sixers have a plan for Ben Simmons to work on his shooting. And I swear I've heard this every offseason. There's a plan for Ben Simmons. He's going to work on it. I don't like that either. Yeah, I've heard that for like the past three years as a Sixers fan. Is ben Simmons, yeah, he's going to work on the shooting. He's really he's going to get more aggressive. 
he's going to do this and he's going to do that. And it's, we never see it. The season comes around and it's, oh, wait, this is the same Ben Simmons we saw. Like, I don't need to see left-handed, right-handed. I don't care if he don't need to see him shoot with two hands, no hands. Um, I think he's got to go. I think they got to find something, even if you can get uh, some good role guys to throw around Maxi, and then you bring back a Danny Green and you uh, look at, we got to use our exceptions better as well. When you look at the Sixers, they didn't really allocate their, uh, their mid-level exceptions, the biannual exceptions, the trip. We have an $8 million trade exception for Al Horford. It's they've got to get creative, but I mean, I would move on from uh, Ben Simmons for sure. I would Portland, if you could float him and pull a CJ. I don't think Dame's on the table. Dame is probably not on the table. CJ might be on the table, but the Ben Simmons thing is just so, it's such an enigma of like his confidence disappearing because he averaged 14 points throughout the regular season. He used to, like you said, he used to be able to shoot free throws. Like it seems like not only has he not gotten better, he has regressed. And to the Doc Rivers point real quick, I don't think he's going to be fired either, but it's just not a good look, especially when last time we saw him, he blew the 3-1 lead with the Clippers. And then the same weekend that we saw him lose game seven, we saw the Clippers advance to the conference finals for the first time. So it's not a good look on Doc because that's pretty much the same roster that Ty Lue has. And they did it without Kawhi. So not a good look for Doc. But the trading of Ben Simmons, like, yeah, CJ's the popular choice out there. And – Joel Embiid, if he runs with a guard that can shoot, I think would be so deadly. I mean, like Shaq got Kobe and then D Wade and then like Tim, Tim Duncan had Tony and Monty. When you give a big like guards that are clutch and can shoot, that's, that's a big deal. CJ certainly can shoot the ball and is uh, definitely shown he's not scared of the moment, but like, like if you're the Blazers or a different team, do you want to take a chance on Ben Simmons? I mean, Ben Simmons at the end of the day, like, without the recency bias of his terrible, terrible performance. He's 24 years old. He's a three-time All-Star. He's a steel champ. He was a two-time All-Defensive NBA already. Like, the dude's very, very good at basketball. So it's, like, weird to see his, like, trade value plummet so fast and see other teams around the league maybe. It's, like, I'm trying to figure out if, like, does Portland even want to do that trade? Like, that's a popular one. But, like, do teams even want to take Ben Simmons? He's an interesting project. He clearly has a ton of talent. And, like, he's he's fixable. I don't think he's fixable in Philadelphia. I don't think that's going to happen. But he's he's fixable. He could definitely be go somewhere else and be a very good player for somebody. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're another team, you look at similar to how the Orlando Magic, obviously not skill level, but when they took on Marco Fultz, you kind of look at, hey, we can take this guy in our program. These guys, the Sixers program isn't developing, but we trust our program enough to develop these guys' skills. And it's kind of, I mean, the same run of the road for the Trailblazers are as the Sixers are. As we've run now X amount of years with the Ben Simmons and Bede duo. How many years have the Blazers trotted out the C.J. McCollum, Dame Lillard duo, and where has it got them? They got them what? They made a conference final? No, yeah, I believe they made it. One conference finals appearance. And we're swept, yeah. Yeah, so it's like that was really their ceiling. So, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, yeah, what if you're the Blazers, what is it? Does Ben Simmons get you any farther? Or is it can your program push him farther? Can you get him? Can you get him a change of scenery, put him up there? And Does uh, Damian Lillard want to be in Portland if they trade CJ for Ben? Like, I don't think so, honestly. CJ's yeah. his guy. That's his running mate. Yeah, I mean, 
I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I'm not inside the mind of Damian Lillard. I mean, I don't think he's there <laughs> past two that. years anywhere. Like, I think it's inevitable that he will – he's a loyalty guy, but, I mean, everybody breaks on the loyalty thing. Like, that's eventually going to run out of uh, – the, the sand in the hourglass is going to run out on that. So, it's like – I mean, maybe they present him as this is kind of our last ditch. Like, we see where we're going. We see where we're heading anyway is let's try this out. We've tried C.J. McCollum and you for years now. Let's uh, let's bring this guy in. Hopefully, we can revitalize him. But yeah, I don't know. They're an interesting spot. I mean, there's a couple other ones. The Bulls have Levine if they ever wanted to move off. I don't know what the Bulls are doing. I mean, they're what another lottery year anyway. Like they got Vucevic and they're still in the lottery. They got Vucevic late in the year, to be fair. But yeah, they're still in the lottery, and also they're in the lottery in a year which you could make a play in as a tenth seed, and they still weren't able to do that. So exactly. So I mean, Zach Levine could be there. And I'm more interested, as I've said a lot, is the Sixers letting Maxi, letting Tyrese Maxi, kind of take the reign as the point guard, and not exactly like going out and getting a true point guard, but getting a, a two guard that's more of that score. He's a good ball handler, like CJ McCollum, Zach Levine. They're ball handlers. They can do the same stuff. But I like, I, I want to see Tyrese Maxi get his shot because I feel like he got valuable reps, although we were eliminated and the season was as was a failure. I think. For Tyrese Maxey alone, just getting those minutes in big crunch time because Ben Simmons couldn't be on the floor. It kind of groomed him. So, I mean, going forward, I would like to see the Sixers give him his due because I think we got a steal when we picked him uh, 21st last year. Like, I think he's a legit talent if you push him enough, get him the reps, and kind of give him the reins and let him do his thing as he showed a little bit in the series. He definitely showed his inexperience as a rookie, but, I mean, he's a rookie in a big playoff series as your team is kind of sinking. And they're kind of just throwing everything on your shoulders for your uh, max player. Oh, I agree. And uh, I was thinking about that watching Tyrese Maxey play and Ben Simmons on the bench. I was like, man, the Sixers would be like luck out. If it's, is it really that simple that they could maybe just trade Ben Simmons, get a shooting guard, and then like develop Maxey? Like in a perfect world, it's that simple. But we'll see. And I do think that's the recipe. Like if if you can land CJ or someone with that confidence and has that shot, you put him with Embiid, you get Seth Curry going still, and um, Maxi can develop, then yeah. I mean, you might lose something defensively, but like that's not where they were struggling. They needed they needed more offense and then someone that could they could go to outside of Joel. Exactly. Which brings me back, like I feel like the person that's not getting spoken about in this conversation that we need more from is Tobias Harris. He got his big contract. It's not like he was terrible. One of the games he was terrible, but, like, he did show up mostly for his 20 points. But it's like, I don't know, big time, big time uh, playoff series. Your team's dwindling. Ben Simmons isn't giving you anything. Joel can only do so much. Like, Tobias, like, you needed more Tobias Harris, too. Yeah. I mean, Tobias Harris really is – he's just – he's what Tobias Harris is. It's kind of this NBA, right, where he gets – you see a lot of guys who probably shouldn't get a contract like that, but it's like there's another team out there that will give him that money. There's enough Magics and Charlotte Bobcats or Charlotte Hornets and enough Houston Rockets and Pistons where they'll just spend the money just to spend it. Hey, we got a, we got a guy to come sell us some tickets to kind of force the hand of the Sixers. I mean – you can go even farther back to when the Jimmy Butler, I'm not going to go that far back, but that's kind of when the Sixers troubles began. But yeah, I mean, Tobias Harris, it's fair. I watched Tobias Harris. He annoys the hell out of me. Definitely probably him and Ben Simmons. They hit that three headed dragon of Doc Rivers, Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris drives me absolutely insane. So, I mean, yeah, Tobias, 
yeah, Tobias has to step it up. I mean, Tobias isn't going anywhere, so he's going to be – You made a good point with the contract. He's probably not that player to where you would – like, he's a good player. He's giving you 20 and 5, but he's not that dude where I'm talking about that. I, what we need from him to step up, but, like, with the contracts now, his contract says he's that type of player, but he's not that – he's not that dude. Yeah, no, nah, yeah. Tobias Harris is – um, yeah, he's not that guy. And, yeah, the Sixers, I mean, it's a long offseason in Philly. It's just getting started. And there's going to be a lot of critical decisions for Daryl Morey to make. I mean, he's sort of – he does – he's got some crazy stuff. So, it's like I kind of trust Daryl Morey to do some, something wild. But I just got to sit back and see what we're going to do. Like, see, uh, are we going to move Ben? Are we going to put him in this fictitious shooting program and let him shoot with his right hand? And pray that fixes it. Like, I don't think – because then you run into a case where it's like, if he comes back, do you piss Joel Embiid off? And Joel Embiid say, hey, I don't want to be – I don't want to play with this guy anymore. Get me out of here. So, it's like you kind of – they're walking a tightrope. This is a crucial offseason that could define the next five to ten years of Sixers basketball if they do not pull the right uh, the right triggers. Yeah, I agree. And I think number one priority is making Embiid happy. Like, that's that's your guy. And, you know, Daryl Morey, he managed to get Al Horford off that team and add Seth Curry and Danny Green and get them some shooters because it looked real bleak last offseason, just to be fair. It did. And they got much better. Uh, this one is more of a disappointing result. Like last year, like they got hurt and it was Horford and them, and you didn't expect much. This year was the opposite. But, like, if he was able to get that Horford contract off and rework the roster, I'm sure he can do something with a piece, with a trade piece like Ben Simmons. So it'll be interesting to see. That's for sure, but I mean, to wrap to wrap that up, yeah, I mean, I could talk Sixers disaster for hours, but we're not gonna we're not gonna sit and do that. We got a uh, another sort of disaster out west, I would say, with uh, a little less. I mean, they had some health issues, but obviously, as we saw over the last week, the uh, the Jazz lost four straight games to the Clippers, two with Kawhi Leonard in L.A., and then Kawhi Leonard partially toward the ACL. I think that's what I actually saw it was. It's not a full, it's a knee sprain, much the same thing. He partially toward the ACL, so he's rehabbing. Didn't play in the last two. Paul George, Terrence Mann, and Reggie Jackson kind of turned the clock back or maybe turned the clock forward and uh, propel that team to steal two more games without Kawhi Leonard to send them to the Western Conference Finals. So uh, you were the jazz guy. Obviously, everything we said in that first episode went, so drastically downhill within six hours. So I'm going to give you the floor for the uh, for the Utah Jazz and what happened to them guys. So right off the bat, let's go ahead and I'm a big fan of giving credit. Let's give credit to Ty Lue, having the Clippers ready to go. Paul George, he's definitely no longer Pandemic P. we got to show that man some respect. Play, playoff P showed up and showed out, and then he got some help with from Terrence Mann. So – Terrence Mann, 39 points. Good for him. Young player. Obviously a lot of potential. He's able to do things like that. But sticking to the main topic, the Utah Jazz, which <laughs> they thoroughly disappointed me. I mean, not to make excuses, Donovan Mitchell wasn't 100%. But, like, if he can go out there and give you 39-7-7 and in a closeout game, even with a bum ankle, like, he's not the problem. Like, that's clearly enough. It's – this team is also in a tough position. I thought they were going to not only beat the Clippers in six, go, they were going to go to the finals completely. I was all in on the jazz. I like Donovan Mitchell a lot, but I've come, they 
showed me that they, they don't have what it takes to get it done quite yet. And Rudy Gobert is the interesting piece of the puzzle. You got a three-time defensive player of the year. So it's like you have to play him. He's got a huge contract, but he's getting playing off, playing off the court. Like when you go to small ball lineup, he can't close out. Terrence Mann scored 39 points because he was taking practice shot threes in the corner wide open because Rudy doesn't have – the footwork to close out on that. And then it's like, you can't really go small because once Rudy's out of the game, they just attack the paint like crazy. And to be fair to Reggie Jackson, he was able to attack the paint with Rudy in the game. So it's like, where do you really go? Especially I'm looking at Rudy Gobert's contract starting the following year, his cap hits. And these are going to increase each year from 2021 through 2026 or 2025, 35 mil to 38 to 41 to 43 to 46 and a half. You can't be paying a guy 35 to $45 million for him to be not be able to, for him to not be usable in a closeout game. And this is a Clippers scene without Kawhi Leonard. There's really no excuses. The jazz kind of folded in on themselves. They showed like, so when you watch playoff basketball teams have more time to prepare and study for each other. So you need more tools in the arsenal. The Clippers have the ability to go small or they have the ability to play Zubach and play big. The Jazz don't have that tool. They, the Jazz, the way they got to the one seed and the way they got to this point in the season where they were, they thought we're going to do what we do. We're going to play Jazz basketball and we're just going to do it better than whatever they're doing. And that worked up to a certain point. But when you get to the playoffs and it's about minor adjustments and you've seen a team four games in a row now and they know what you're going to do, you have to be able to adjust. It's not as simple as like we're just going to do it better because uh, game – they lost in six. so game five in Utah. The opening quarter, they scored like 37 or 38 points, and it was like a one point lead. Bogdanovich scored like 30 something, similar to the Seth Curry game. Bogdanovich had like 36. I think he was six for six for three in the first quarter, 18 points, and yet they still lose the game at home to the Kawhi Leonard list Clippers. It's that's tough. I don't know what they do, and I don't know how you get off Rudy Gobert's contract or if they even want to, but like. They need another. They need another big or a way or a, someone that can play the five, so they can match and play small. But it's just hard when you have a three-time defensive player of the year and you got to take him off the court. It's like I don't know what you do. What do you do with? What do you do with Rudy? Yeah, they're in a bad spot. I mean, it was already pretty much going back to the last year when the whole pandemic thing happened. It was already a rocky relationship with Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert to begin with, and then it seemed like hey, this team's rolling. They kind of put it back together. They definitely put it back together. I mean, they were the best team in basketball, I would say. They were consistent. They played defense. They shot the hell out of the ball. And they had everything rolling. And then, as you said, yeah, when it comes down to the playoffs and there's uh, when there's a coach that just focuses on you and there's an entire staff that just focuses on one opponent for a seven-game series, they will find holes in your game. And, yeah, we clearly saw it. I mean, Rudy Gobert. couldn't stretch out to the wing in the small ball lineup with Terrence Mann and Ty Lue saw that and I mean credit to it it's like kind of your Quinn Snyder it's like shit if Terrence Mann's gonna score 40 points and we're gonna go down like that it's like you're kind of like all right just tip your cap right Terrence Mann had the game of his life because as you saw I believe and was it the closeout yeah the closeout game he was not the closeout game was where he went off I believe so yeah. Oh, I swear it was the one in Utah where he went off. I could be wrong, but because I know he had, he stepped back. I don't think he was as good in the closeout. Maybe he was. I don't know. It's how much 
Utah or Western Conference. When my team implodes, I kind of start focusing on them. As I said, I'm a Sixers fan, but it was yeah. the closeout game. Game six is the one Terrence Mann had 39. Okay, so yeah, when so it was game five where he wasn't the the uh, same. Where they kind of they they got lucky, right? They kind of got that where he's not going to do that. But I mean, yeah, if Terrence Mann's going to shoot like that. You kind of just tip your cap. But, yeah, I mean, Rudy Gobert, we we saw his weakness. It's kind of – he's weird on offense because he has a limited skill set on the offensive end as well, right? He's a great defender, but he's he's not your – what you would consider your modern big, right? He's not a guy like DeAndre Ayton who can step out and he's going to hit you mid-range jumpers. He's not Anthony Davis who steps out, even though he plays power forward, slash center, steps out and hits jump shots. Joel Embiid. It's out and hits jump shots. Uh, who else? Nikola Jokic. Like, those guys are – Even Carl Anthony Towns has a jumper, man. Exactly, yeah. All these guys, these are the modern bigs, and you look at – they're kind of – they can extend out too. They don't, I, I can't get that Quinn Snyder was that worried about if Rudy Gobert has to step out and defend a jump shot that our team as a whole can't collapse, box out, and grab a rebound. It's another series where it just seemed as weird as, like, the Clippers started wanting it more, and then they got that momentum. Reggie Jackson started doing his thing. Obviously, Paul George, respect to that man. That man kind of cleared his name from a pandemic B, playoff B. All the memes are kind of gone because when Kawhi Leonard goes out, you say nail in the coffin. We said a week ago, this series is done. You Six games, I was nice. I gave – I said, the Clippers, they won't go out at home. They'll find a way to get one more win and just lose in Utah, but – yeah, those guys, it was the same thing we saw in the Sixers series is the, the hungrier dog eventually figured out the way. And then shout out to Ty Lue too because I kind of slandered Ty Lue quite a bit. I said Ty Lue, he, he he's only around because he got gifted a ring from LeBron, right? And that's kind of – I think that's the consensus thought, and he's shown everybody otherwise now. Like, I yeah, don't think that's up until that moment. Yeah, and my man Quinn Snyder looks stressed on that bench. And they're showing him chew that gum and, like, kick his hair, man, like, that man was chewing gum like a maniac. So, and I thought Quinn Snyder's a great coach, but he got – I guess he got finessed. I don't know. The Jazz just stopped playing defense, too. It was weird. Like the Jazz had great defense all year, and then they kind of just – they're like, all right, we'll just shoot enough threes, right? We'll just hit enough threes, and the Clippers aren't going to hit any threes. And they, it did feel like they were trying to just outshoot them at the end. Yeah, it was, it was weird. And, I mean – they became stagnant, and then eventually, obviously, Donovan Mitchell wasn't the same down the stretch. I think he rolled his he rolled up on his ankle. One of the games, game five, was it? I think towards the end, maybe it was. I want to say it was where towards the end, yeah, because close game, he got rolled up on a little bit, and obviously he was coming in with the ankle injury to begin with, and then Mike Conley came back. I don't know. It's kind of that's a similar situation to a guy that hasn't played basketball in a week or two, getting thrusted into the playoffs, but. In an elimination game, like, he's a vet, but that's that's a tough task. That's hard to do. Yeah, it's a lot to ask. But, I mean, as I said, I mean, I think if you're the Jazz, you've got to try to somehow move off of Gobert. I mean, Donovan Mitchell is going to be your guy unless you're absolutely insane or Donovan Mitchell asks out, then you would – You've got to do whatever it takes to keep Mitchell happy because, like, I – I'm clearly a little biased. I'm a big Donovan Mitchell fan, but that guy's got it. I firmly believe he could be a number one on a championship team. And I don't think he's in his prime yet. And he's dropping ridiculous numbers and crazy playoff performances. So it's like he's clutch and he doesn't back down. He, I remember as a rookie, he was, uh, it was Paul George and Russell in OKC. He won that series and closed them out clutch basket after clutch basket. So it's like, 
just like if you're the Sixers with Embiid, the Jazz got to do whatever it takes to keep Mitchell happy. And like, I don't know what team would you what team do you think's in a worse position? What team would you rather be, like the Sixers or the Jazz? Um, I mean, if I'm being honest and not being a biased fan, I think I'd rather be the Sixers. But I think the pieces that you're attempting to move, Ben Simmons has more value than Rudy Gobert. You'll eventually you'll get a better deal from uh, from moving a Ben Simmons than you would for Rudy Gobert. Rudy Gobert, you're literally, I mean, you're gonna have to attach multiple picks just to try to fetch anything and find a team that can match the money and I just don't think I mean I haven't even ran the trade machine I don't even think I've seen them on online or on Twitter I imagine somebody's done it but I don't even know what a Rudy Gobert trade would look like I would agree I'd rather be the Sixers the Rudy trades are much harder to pull off Ben Simmons is more valuable Um, but I don't think we see the Rudy trade for another season maybe two but it's either that's either coming or Donovan Mitchell is going to get frustrated and one out I think those – or they win the championship. That's the third option. But I don't see that happening, especially with, like, uh, the West getting healthy again next year and a lot of players being back. So, Jazz and Sixers have really good opportunities this season with all the injuries. And it's just unfortunate that's uh, their season's played out this way. Yeah. I mean, they each um, they each shot themselves in the foot. It's not really – they both – it was self-inflicted damage and uh, – I guess bad coaching, you could call it. I wouldn't didn't really expect bad coaching out of Quinn Snyder because he's always been good. I've always liked Quinn Snyder. But, I mean, yeah, the future, both of those franchises, they're in a weird spot. They kind of – they got to figure out um, what to do and what to do fast because they both have stars that they ultimately have to choose and they ultimately have to keep happy because it's a player movement error. So, you piss those guys off, you'll have nobody, and everybody will be gone. Oh, yeah, and uh, I could see either of those teams figuring it out and going, like, running the table next year or collapsing, like, the same thing again. So, I don't know. It's going to be fun to watch, though. I'm definitely interested. For sure. So, I mean, now that we're kind of – we've kind of touched base with all that, we can kind of – we will uh, jump into a little conference finals action I mean let's flip it back we've been going east west east west let's throw it back to the east this is definitely the people's conference final this is the one that everybody predicted and I know I did I had this one pretty much nailed down since the season began we got the Atlanta Hawks against the three seed Milwaukee Bucks who have home court home court is a three seed in the conference finals which is uh that's a hell of a task obviously um it's kind of going to be tough, tough task for the Hawks. But, I mean, as I said earlier today, as we were at work, it's like the Hawks feel like a team that we count them out, right? Like everybody says, yeah, the Bucks are going to the finals. Like the Bucks might win the championship. And it's like the Hawks are like, hold up. Like we're that we're, – we're these dudes that we don't give a damn who you think is going to win the championship. We don't even care if we're down 25 points. We'll, uh, we'll find a way to rally back and never give up. And credit to Nate McMillan who kind of keeps those guys going – and he has uh, good tools to work with as well. He kind of has – he's made the right lineup adjustments. He's – the offense is definitely working from when Lloyd Pierce was there. But uh, so we got Bucks, Hawks. Um, I guess who do you like? How many games? And what do you see coming from this series? I think this is going to be a fun series to watch. I think it's actually going to be competitive and, like, pretty entertaining. I do think the Bucks are going to win, like – 
they're a much better basketball team, and now they're they're tested. Like, yeah, the Nets team wasn't a hundred percent, but you're still going. If Kevin Durant's on the court, that's a challenge. As we saw, he was like, I don't know, foot barely stepped on the line from stealing the series anyway. So like, the Bucks are tested. I think they're going to definitely go to the finals, but the Hawks. You got to give them respect. They earned this. I think they win two games. I think the Bucks advance in six. But the matchup is interesting. They played three times in the regular season, and Trey only played in one of them. That's kind of interesting. I think if uh, what is if the Co- season series at? Bucks swept them. Uh, Hawks won one. Hawks won one. Okay. But I think the Bucks do win in six. Giannis does what he does, but I think. What's going to be interesting to see is how much Brook, how many minutes Brook Lopez plays. Because if Brook Lopez is on the court, then Trey Young and the the Young Capella pick and roll and him going in for a floater or an oop is going to be there over and over again. And those are easy buckets. And it's going to be interesting to see how the Bucks adjust. And I'm really curious to see what Mike Boomhoser does and to see how many minutes Brook Lopez plays. Yeah, I mean, that's great. Yeah, right. Brooke Lopez, I mean, that's got to be the first thing Nate McMillan's salivating at when he sees this series. He says, how many times can we throw Brooke Lopez into the high pick and roll and uh, make him do something? Either make him make the switch, force the switch, and throw him on Trey Young and say, let's dance. Or, yeah, the the lobs. The lobs are nasty. I can't stand John Collins. The guy's, the, <laughs> the guy's a little annoying for uh, for what he does and what his uh, worth is. But, yeah, the high screen rolls with him is deadly. Obviously, Capella, that's his only offensive game. All he can do is catch lobs or putbacks. So, I mean, with that, yeah, they could very well force Brooke Lopez off the court. And then it's like the question is, is Mike Budenholzer, can he adjust, say this happens? Can he adjust? Because Mike Budenholzer, he's he's suspect coach, too. We've seen that guy. He was so ready to get fired. He was. I bet you he wanted. He said so bad. Come on, guys, just lose this game seven, so I can get fired. So I so I can go do something else. Because we've seen time and time again, like Budenholzer just let you down. And it's like this Hawks team, Budenholzer, ex Hawks coach. Yeah. So it's like, obviously not the same guys, but it's like a franchise that knows this guy, and they're like, can we stick it to this guy? Can we come out? I agree with you. I like Bucks. I would say I'd say Bucks in six as well. I like the Hawks' grittiness, and I feel like they'll definitely be able to take a game on their home floor. And uh, I, I feel like they could take a game uh, in Milwaukee as well. But uh, yeah, Giannis should do his thing. I don't really see anything that would stop him from doing his thing. They just got to try to get him out and uh, get him out. They wrong. don't. They don't have anyone that can defend him. Nope. It's like, yeah, he's a uh, he's a bad matchup for any of those guys. I mean, it's not going to be as simple as the Tobias Harris where you can throw a Gallinari on him. He will get eaten alive if you throw him on Giannis. But then it's like you need the guys like Middleton, Drew Holiday to keep showing up, keep firing at all cylinders. And then who else? I don't even know how deep their rotation is. With no DiVincenzo, they got Bryn Forbes. He plays, I'd assume. Yeah, the DiVincenzo thing is tough. I was going to say, if they do go small, though, they have the ability to put Giannis at the five or P.J. Tucker at the five. Forgot about P.J. Tucker. Okay, yeah, so they could easily – There's even Bobby Portis as well. He kind of fell out <laughs> the rotation. But he Bobby can play 15 minutes. Yeah, Bobby can come in and do some fouls. That's probably what you tell him. Yeah, come on in, get your three fouls. And then... The Marcus Cousins role now. Yeah, you come in, get your quick fouls, and uh, 
Yeah, but I mean, I like that option if you're the uh, if you're the Bucks is probably go small because I mean you have versatile enough players. B.J. Tucker's versatile, Middleton's versatile. Your whole lineup's pretty versatile. And then obviously with Giannis at the five, that's perfect. He's still going to be the best rebounder on the floor. You're still going to have that. You're not going to lose the rebounding advantage, right? Like Giannis is, he's that dude. And uh, oh, Giannis can give you 15 rebounds a game, like oh, easily. Oh, easily. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So I mean, that would be the if I'm the Bucks, that's the lineup. I'm going with, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think you'll see maybe 15 minutes a night out of Brook Lopez in this series. I think he will get some run, but then he's going to eventually get their closing lineup is going to have to be a small ball lineup or they would just get eaten, eaten alive. Like that, that pick and roll will tear Brook Lopez to shreds. Yeah. Um, you can't, you can't hand this Hawks team uh, easy buckets. Like they're just, they can they shoot the ball shooters. too well. Yeah. They have so many shooters and then Capella and Collins, they can grab boards. So it's like, they're definitely, I guess, I mean, they're maybe equally as versatile. I don't know. Like, I like Capella and Collins. They're pretty versatile big men. Compared uh, to, sorry, compared to what? No, just compared to a guy like Brooke Lopez. Like, they can do. I was just going to say the Bogdanovich knee thing scares me. Yeah. Like, uh, they need a healthy Bogdanovich to have a chance in this series. And uh, he didn't look healthy at the end of the Sixers series. That is facts. He is, yeah, I mean, he's probably not going to be 100%. He couldn't even finish the series. I don't think he – he didn't finish – he was not on the floor at the end of game seven, I didn't believe, in the Philly series. And then obviously in game six, he was yanked early as well with the knee issue. So I'd imagine he's not going to be 100%. Right? He's not going to be that guy. And you're right, they need everybody to fire at all cylinders. Like they're at a tall test. This is – they're not facing the Doc Rivers Sixers, right? Budenholzer's Budenholzer, but it's not – I'll trust Giannis over dudes like Ben Simmons. I'll take Giannis and Middleton and those dudes and Drew Holiday. Bucks team have been tested not only with the Nets, but their early exit last year with the Heat as well. And they exercised their demons against them as they swept them in the first round this year. So this Bucks Bucks team feels like they're ready to go. They've had their playoff losses before. They got their two time MVP. It feels like they might be, this might be the time to break through. Yeah, it feels like it definitely feels like yeah they're they're the guys. I mean that's all I really that's all I have on the, on the Eastern final preview. I think Bucks and six. You said Bucks and six as well. We're kind of tipping our caps to the Hawks, but we're saying that it's it's inevitably going to come to come to an end, and it'll uh, be interesting to see where the Hawks go. This is great experience for that young group of guys, and it'd be a one hell of an upset if they find a way to pull this off and go to the finals. It'd be like this would be typical for this year. I mean, this year's been pretty uh pretty crazy to begin with, with these final four teams. If they go to the finals, I'll be rooting for them because that that would be a great story. That's facts. Even though they eliminated us, I feel like I would ultimately have to root for them because it's just like yeah, they're they're wild. But I mean, now we'll jump over Western Conference Finals. They've already played a game. We saw that. The Suns took a 1-0 lead. They defended their home courts to open the series. Devin Booker, 35 points. It was either 35 or 36, somewhere around there. Triple-double. I mean, he did what he had to do in game one, right? No Chris Paul. COVID protocols. Yeah, COVID protocols. He's out. He missed game one. He's already ruled out for game two. Obviously, on the Clippers' side, Kawhi's not playing. He's already been ruled out for game two as as well. So, we're sitting at 1-0. Suns, and I mean, we're kind of, we're kind of at the point where I mean, 
uh, the Suns just look like they have more, right? It's like the Clippers, they did their thing. They came back on the Jazz, but it's like that miracle stuff eventually runs out. And it's like, it really was a miracle. Like Reggie Jackson had to do all that. Terrence Mann had to do all that. Paul George is still going to get his. Like Paul George is the, he's that guy. He's a star. He'll do his thing. But it's like those role guys around him, they're eventually going to run out of enough. And eventually, I mean, I think game three, Chris Paul will be back. <clears throat> Sorry, voice kind of going there. I think game three, Chris Paul will come back. And um, yeah, I mean, I think Suns, I'll be nice to the Clippers. I think it'll be Suns and five. I think the Clippers, they'll find a way to musker up a game in L.A. They'll, uh, I've said it in the last podcast, it seems like the whole, the, the home teams, the role guys show up. I mean, you look at this, besides for the Sixers, let's not talk about them, but usually the role guys show up in these home games. So I think the Clippers, they'll be able to take one at home, but I mean, I just don't think they have enough. The Suns, they look like that team when they get Chris Paul back, they'll uh, have somebody to run that offense who they can trust, veteran, Hall of Fame, point guard, and uh I just think the Clippers, they'll run out of options. I like that depth, as I said before, CP3 lead the Suns to the finals in my uh, my bold take of the last one. Obviously, it's weird because he's not there to start this series and will not play in the first two games, but he's going to help close the series out eventually. So uh, what do you got over there? What do you see? Yeah, so this conference finals feels like a big mismatch, honestly, just because the Clippers aren't healthy. I feel like if Kawhi Leonard was there, we're looking at a seven-game series. Maybe the Clippers even win. But without Kawhi Leonard, and even without Chris Paul, the Suns still got it done. Booker's Booker was incredible. But without Kawhi Leonard, I don't see the Clippers really winning more than one game, two max. Like, I don't see how this series goes more than six games. Like, the Suns – the Suns are the real deal. They're, they're here to play. You saw it against the Nuggets. Granted, the Nuggets are a beat-up team, too, but, like, they didn't take it easy. They uh, they swept them. They didn't give them anything. So, like, I could see the Clippers getting swept, especially if they go down 0-2 and all of a sudden Chris Paul comes back for the L.A. games. It's like you already had – like, I know you're going to be at home and you get your home court back, but you add Chris Paul to the mix. That's going to be really hard to overcome. The Clippers, they did a great job. They, they made it this far. It's just really unfortunate that Kawhi Leonard got hurt. Otherwise, we're kind of getting robbed as basketball fans of us. I think it would have been a great seven-game series. But I, I really don't see how the Clippers can steal this series at all. I can see how they steal a game, maybe two. I don't see how they beat this Suns team four times. I just – I have no idea how they would be able to do it. If Terrence Mann can score 39 points a game, then sure. But, like, I think he followed his 39-point up performance up with nine points which sounds like he went back came back down to earth so I don't know Paul George was good he gave you 30 plus like I don't know what else you can really expect out of him the Clippers are just really mismatched Ty Lue's gonna have those guys ready to go they're gonna play well but Monty Williams always has his son's teams ready to go and like I think that's a big thing so you got Aiden and Booker Chris Paul will come back but Crowder and Bridges and then Cameron Payne playing backup minutes Cameron Payne's been great so it's like this team's really firing on all cylinders. It's like it's going to be hard for them to lose. I don't see I don't see the Clippers winning four games. I don't see how it can happen. No, no shot in hell. I don't think unless unless the Suns all of a sudden they don't want to play defense anymore and they want to get into a, a Western shootout and so you can uh, hit more threes. But yeah, I mean, as I said, the Suns just have more. I like that group when you have Booker, Aiton, uh, Bridges. Uh, Payne off the bench, Cam Johnson gets some minutes, and then 
I considered going into this series, I said, if the Clippers are going to have a shot, it's almost like game one is a must win. Like they have to win that game. Like they have to do something to throw the Suns off their edge and kind of get the Suns to start doubting themselves and to roll in to Phoenix in a game one and steal that game would have been so huge because that's then it's like the Suns have to go back and think, damn, we can't, can we do this without Chris Paul? You start putting doubt in those young guys, right? Devin Booker, his first time ever being there. Like Paul George has been around the block a little bit. Uh, Marcus Mars has been around the block. Reggie Jackson's played quite a bit of basketball. So it's like, yeah, Rondo has been there. Ty Lue has been in a final. So it's like, the experience side in this playoff thing, if the Clippers could have taken game one and you get the Suns to doubt themselves, then it's like, then it gets interesting. But then obviously back to reality, the Suns hold, they hold, uh, hold the court. Didn't look as sloppy. I felt they would look sloppy as hell without a CP three there. I kind of felt, Hey, they'll kind of look out of sorts and the Clippers will, uh, I'll have a shot to capitalize, but it kind of never happened. The Suns did their thing. And then, as you said, with Chris Paul only looming coming back, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a sweep. I mean, I wouldn't. I said five, just being nice to Paul George and those Clippers guys and Ty Lue, thinking they'll be able to adjust. But, yeah, it's a lot different for a guy like Terrence Mann when you don't have the center just standing in the paint uh, trying to guard you. you got actual guys that are going to close out and play defense. And the Suns have a lot of tools going into what it looks like a finals run. Yeah, and I like that confidence point you brought up because it works the other way too. So, like, if the Clippers were going in to come steal it, kind of mess with their confidence. But, no, now the confidence is sky high because they know they can win, and they know they can win without Chris Paul. So, they feel like they they probably feel unbeatable once he suits up for them. So, it's like confidence is skyrocketing. Devin Booker's that guy. He's special, and it's just – I don't see the Suns losing. Exactly. So, we both, we both see eye to eye. There's no – there's no disagreement. Um, but as uh, NBA fans, we deserve a Suns-Bucks final because that's going to be the most exciting one by far. Yeah, we'll definitely we'll see how this develops over the next week. But, I mean, that looks what we're headed towards. It'd be kind of weird if that wasn't the matchup. But then again, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I it's think the It's been a crazy Suns, season. Yeah, I mean, I think the Suns are shooting. It's just let's see what happens in the East. Like the East, can the East get crazy? Can it give us something that we didn't expect? And uh, yeah, we'll see how that plays out. I mean, that's uh, that's pretty much all we got for basketball. I mean, we're kind of in wait and see mode. We're kind of see what these teams, see what rumors come out in the off season, see what uh, and see how these games ultimately play out when the uh, Eastern Finals gets going. I believe tomorrow night, game one. In, East uh, will be Wednesday, and tomorrow night will be game two of the West. Damn. So Wednesday night, they're giving these guys – they're giving two days in between. That's crazy. I thought the NBA would try to get them. Right, that's weird. So, yeah, I was wrong. Wednesday night we get to see – I'm interested to watch that. I'm not really – I mean, I'll watch the West, but I'm not that, like, locked in. I want to see Atlanta Hawks, Milwaukee Bucks Wednesday night. Let's see what Giannis can do in the conference finals against uh, against Trey Young. I expect Trey Young to do his thing. But I mean, that's it there. We're going to scoop over the NFL stuff. Nothing really happened in the NFL that's um worth discussing. It's kind of quiet training camps are going, holdouts, whatever. I haven't really heard any big name holdouts so we didn't talk about the last time around. So we're kind of wait and see. I mean, we get into that fall months though. We uh there will be a lot of football talked about on here, but we'll, we'll, we'll throw it back to golf 
it's weird, but we just finished up the U.S. Open wrapped up Sunday. John Rahm uh, captures his first ever major U.S. Open champion after having to withdraw from the Memorial Tournament just two weeks ago due to COVID. That was weird. The guy up six shots and has to withdraw. And it's kind of like he showed up, I think, Tuesday. So he, he got there Tuesday and just kind of battled his way through it and found a way. I mean, it was a weird it was a weird tournament overall. I mean, when you looked at there was guys like, I think, Russell Henley. There was a Richard Bland who was like a 40-year-old. 40-year-old Englishman who kind of battled, and then he d- he dwindled once it got to Saturday. Everybody kind of figured is he's going to run out of steam because there's guys. There's always guys in these majors that seem to play above their level for a day or two, and then it catches up. It's the U.S. Open. It's some people would say the biggest uh, one, of, the biggest major. It's debatable depending on uh, how you look at everything, but it's arguably the toughest layout for a major with the thick rough and the, the fast greens and he kind of faded. And then we just saw John Rahm surge out of nowhere with uh, the putt on 17. He has a huge putt on 17. And then he kind of, so he's in prime position. He's at five under Ustazen's at five under, I want to say at the time as well. And it's like, so he has to score, right? Get to the clubhouse six under, you put all the pressure on Ustazen to make a move, even though he has five holes. And then the second shot, I believe Rom ripped it into a bunker and then he, he splashes it out of the bunker. And then it's like, okay, so you got a wicked left to right putt. If you make this putt, you kind of throw all the pressure as Ustazen is going to see the leaderboard and see John Rom post a six under and get into the clubhouse. No, he has to score. And then John Rom did just that. And it was, it was amazing. It seemed like everybody said it was only a matter of time. John Rom seems to play very well on the toughest layouts, the, t- the toughest, the toughest of courses, the fastest greens, the thickest rough. John Rahm finds a way to ball, and it kind of continues that trend of the power guys that continue to succeed at the U.S. Open, where you had Bryson DeChambeau last year. Gary Woodland won, won, won it at Pebble Beach. Obviously, Brooks Kepka has two as well. Like these power, these power hitters are finding a way to dominate the U.S. Open. And then you look at guys, the hometown guy, Sander Schauffele, falls short one under. Uh, we're in a golf pool. I think we both used him this week. It was kind of lackluster. It's weird to say that. he He's at his floor. That's his U.S. Open floor. That's his worst finish ever at the U.S. Open, which is tied for seventh. That was uh, – It was just disappointing because Sunday he gave you even even golf, you know. So he was in position to do something. Yeah, I mean, I watched for three days. I worked Sunday, sucked. I missed Sunday. I was following it all day on my phone. But three days, yeah, I mean, Xander Schauffele kind of blew his chance. I think it was Friday. He missed a bunch of easy putts early. He was hitting darts, and everybody kind of favored him. He's the hometown guy. He's from San Diego. The U.S. Open Torrey Pines is in San Diego. Everybody kind of figured, hey, is this the shot for Xander Schauffele, who's kind of like the Tony Finau majors? Tony Finau loves to finish in the top five, get those second-place finishes, and it's kind of like I've said it afterwards. It's like Xander Schauffele is really just this Tony Finau, just major form because he does this at Augusta every year where he's always in the top. He's at least a shoe-in for top ten, if not top five at Augusta. Then he shows up the U.S. Open, his career, as I said, this is his worst finish at seventh. His previous was tied for sixth. I think he has a couple – he has a third-place finish, so he's always up there. And disappointing, I mean, obviously we have the Bryson DeChambeau meltdown. Bryson DeChambeau makes the turn at five under. He's in the lead. He's in sole possession of the U.S. Open, and it's like Bryson DeChambeau is going to repeat. 
I said it myself when I saw it. I even think he was like, he got into the minuses as far as the betting lines go. Like the, the books shoot him in. Bryson DeChambeau is not going to mess this up. He's going to win the U.S. Open, go back to back, and kind of he's going to have one to stick it to Brooks, right? Like in the middle of this rivalry, as Brooks finished, I think, third, he finished at four. But uh, then we watched the crumble. I mean, he shot an eight over. I think it was eight over on the back nine. It was some disaster. Yeah, it was eight over. So that was the most <laughs> disappointing <laughs> part. He was an absolute disaster meltdown. And for those of you that are wondering why I'm laughing, because that was one of my bold predictions. I went out on a limb. I said Bryson DeChambeau is going to go back to back. It It's very rare. Brooks did it. And then I think before that, it was like – 30, 40 years has it happened. And, I, and, you know, going into the back nine, he was minus two on the round. He was minus five overall. Overall, looked like he had it. And then he just proceeds to shoot plus eight on the last nine holes, which is almost an impressive feat in itself. What an epic meltdown. It was just a, it was just a full-on collapse. Yeah, he, um, yeah, he really, he unraveled. It's kind of, nobody saw it coming. It was weird, but. He just has such a weird game. It's like he's very worried on the driver speed, driver speed, how fast he hit the driver, how far can he hit the driver. And it's like the big, the loophole in the game is the wedge game. His wedges, I watched him. Although I loved his demeanor because he played like crap Thursday and kind of scrambled his way back in. I think he finished that round. I forget what it was, to be honest. Thursday was plus two at the end yeah, of the so, day. Yeah. So he was like four or five over, though in that round and he scrambled his way back to get to two. And then it was like, okay, well, if you can go from two to even, you bring it back down and you're starting to play yourself into the championship. And it's like usually where you see DeChambeau um, kind of get psyched out or get pissed off. And when he's pissed off, he just starts swinging super hard and the ball goes wherever it wants to go because you're pissed and swinging hard. I mean, every casual golfer can say that they've dealt with that. When you get mad and you just, yeah, you just swing the swing. And it kind of all falls off the rails, and then we kind of – but he didn't do that early in the tournament. He kind of kept it together, found his way to get his uh, get his birdies and get himself back into the championship and eventually at the top of the leaderboard. And then, yeah, the plus eight, I mean, Jesus, some OB balls, uh, the, the, the chip that went flying like 30 yards right and long into the rough near the Michelob Ultra tent was like, okay, it's like – that's bad. Like that's casual golfer stuff. You don't see that out of a guy who's in contention to win the U S open. So yeah, he kind of blew it that back line. That surprised, that surprised me. I'm assuming it surprised a lot of people. And then, I mean, Louis, Louis Ustazen, he's a veteran and he was now in position. He was in position at the PGA to kind of push Phil, even though he was a group ahead of Phil, I want to say. And all he had to do on 17 was not hit the ball left, right? Everybody saw John Rahm hit the ball right, and you're good, right? And you have a shot. And what's he do? He, he, I think he hit a cut anyway. It's like he didn't even pull the ball left, but he hit a cut and just started it too far left, and it never cut, and then it smashed off the hill, and that's OB. And he kind of, I mean, for lack of a better word, he kind of pissed away a shot to at least force a playoff of John Rahm and give himself a shot to win. It's like weird that. Uh, Louis Ustazen is a staple of major golf now through two of uh, the past two majors of him putting himself at the top. The tournament was, I mean, it was fun. It was a typical U.S. Open. I mean, I like that the scores were lower, right? You see it's actually a challenge. You don't see guys shooting 20 20 under. You definitely see guys shoot 20 over. But uh, you weren't seeing guys come out and shoot 20 under at the U.S. Open and dominate it. 
So it's always refreshing when you see um, the best players in the world get tested at a course like this to see uh, who can put it all together. And I mean, I'm happy for John Rahm. He kind of got screwed at the Memorial losing out on that and he was going to coast to that. And then for him to put it all together and really, you saw how much it meant to him when he finally hit the putt on 18 to go into the clubhouse that it really, uh, really meant a lot. Cause I mean, I could imagine the past two weeks, it's been just sitting on him that he was that close to $1.6 million in a Memorial uh, tournament win at Jack's place to go to Torrey Pines. And I mean, I guess you would want the 1.6 to go with your 2.2, but I mean, if you're not going to get the 1.6, I guess you're happy with the 2.2 for sure. And a major championship as John Rahm's always like weird. Cause it's like, I could have seen him not winning one ever. I mean, he's a hell of a golfer, great golfer, but it's like, I could have easily seen him not capturing one and just being one of the great golfers to not win a major. But now it's like the sky's the limit. It's like how many, how, how many could John Rahm win? Can he put it together? He's always good at Augusta. He always battles there. Can he, can he get a green jacket next year? When will he get that? So the sky's the limit for John Rahm. And I mean, next golf major, I mean, for big ones is the, the open, the British opens back. It was canceled last year due to COVID. And we'll kind of see that. I mean, we have the Travelers this weekend. I haven't even really looked as far as my pick. I know one thing I do know that I saw after watching is guys that usually play well at the U.S. Open, um, they're not really a worry that, hey, usually worry, did a guy blow his load at the U.S. Open? Did he play, play, play so good at the U.S. Open that he's going to play like crap the next weekend? It seems like that doesn't happen. So that's about all I got to wrap up the u.s open i don't know if you had any closing thoughts it was fun no it was fun you basically cover it all the sky's the limit for rom it was cool to see him like break through and win a major and it was a fun moment to watch and i'm excited to see what he what else he can do like you said to see if he can put put it together and see if he can win a couple more exactly so i mean we move forward we'll definitely uh I'm going to see how the PGA season keeps going, see if I can make a run or either of us can make a run in this golf pool. I think I climbed up to 11th. I think you made a little bit of push up as well, somewhere near 21. I think you gained a couple slots even with the poor Shafle showing. But I mean, so we got the golf action. We wrapped up NBA. It's, it's kind of, it's heating up. It's heating up as we get closer to the July finals. It feels, feels weird because usually the finals is just about getting, or the finals is already underway by now. We're almost wrapped up with the NBA finals. Yeah, it'd be like ending right about now, June usually. So it's it's weird seeing it in July, but it's weird. I like it. I mean, I guess one topic to close on, I think the NBA kind of whiffed of they should have I liked them opening the season on Christmas Day. Thought they kind of whiffed on that opportunity instead of I think they said they're going back to the normal October start time. I kinda of like that because this NBA basketball, I mean as we said before, we're not big baseball guys, right? So I kind of like this NBA carrying us through into the – almost through the summer. It's like it's refreshing and enjoyable. But I mean, That's the best part for me. Like uh, I don't have to watch baseball that long because the NBA is going a little bit longer. So that part I do enjoy. And this year there's some Olympic basketball. So we got some big names signed up for the team. So we'll get a little more basketball. So that will be fun. That is true. Maybe we will talk some Olympics next time around, next week, or maybe even if we fit a, another one in this week. I didn't even think of that on the docket is the Olympic commits, but there is some big names with that. So, I mean, we sit back. We got to watch what happens in these, uh, in these two conference finals. 
and uh, it's just going to be an enjoyable time. I think it's going to be, I think we're in for a good Eastern Conference final and then ultimately to jump into the finals and be able to preview that. I am very, very excited to talk about the NBA finals when that finally arrives. Uh, any closing thoughts from you, my guy? I don't think so. Excited for the finals. Uh, I think this is going to wrap it up. If you're still listening and you're rocking with us this long, I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, from Alex, this is Brandon. We're going to uh, we're going to sign off here. It was episode two of the Take Three podcast. It's always fun and we can't wait to uh, crank out episode three, hopefully with some uh, with some finals matchups. Y'all have a good one.